Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, federal leaders are undergoing party reviews. Will it be a positive experience? Another oil company has left the patch out west. Are the dominoes beginning to fall? And Hamilton 100 is in a bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games 100 years after Hamilton first hosted. The mayor weighs in. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, Andrew Scheer will remain as leader of the Conservative Party for the time being. Uh, the caucus decided against any sort of leadership vote. To talk more about all of this, Peter Grafe is uh, joining us, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, what is the process that's in place that allows for such a, uh, a vote or uh, an option here to move forward? Uh, well, I guess it was uh, somewhere around 2015, uh, a bit earlier, actually. I guess Michael Chong, uh, a Conservative MP, was trying to find a way to reduce the power of party leaders over their caucuses uh, and had uh, the passage of his Reform Act, which means that the first meeting of party caucuses after an election, they get to choose whether they want to give power to their the caucuses, so the elected MPs, to choose who their chair is, to decide uh, whether they want the power to decide whether to kick out caucus members or not, or to leave that in the leader's hands. And what was particularly relevant yesterday was, you know, do they want to give themselves the power to be able to get rid of their party leader or to choose another one? And uh, yesterday the Conservatives chose that they weren't going to exercise that power, and so uh, they won't have that ability to uh, petition to get rid of their leader. Why the decision they made? Well, I mean, I think there's two things. I mean, on the one hand, if the MPs really do decide that they don't want the leader, uh, I think history has shown that the leader can't continue. Uh, mm. Someone like Stockwell Day, for instance, had a bunch of members uh, leave when he was a leader, and he saw the writing on the wall, and he left. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, they aren't really giving up that much. I think on the other, uh, most of these parties now have systems where the uh, every member of the party has a role in electing them. And so... It's difficult to give oneself the power uh, over the members to say we're going to overrule the decision that was made by the party members and, and get rid of this leader. Uh, and so presumably Andrew Scheer was able to convince them that if party members really didn't like him, they'll have a chance to get uh, rid of him or at least indicate that at the spring convention of the Conservative Party. So in the interim, the caucus should work together to try and understand what went wrong in the last election and begin to correct those issues. Is that what this is all about, Peter? Look united now after the election, after the election, and heading into the next session, and then deal with this in the spring at a review. Yeah, I mean that's obviously Andrew Shear's survival plan, right? He has to, yeah. he had to get over this this hurdle. I mean, already we saw Peter McKay and others seemingly beginning to jockey for his position. Number of people coming out and say Andrew Shear must go. So. If Andrew Scheer wants to stay, he has to make sure that his caucus performs well in Parliament, that he looks to be a strong leader of the opposition. Uh, but also, if he can reduce the amount of jockeying inside his caucus, it allows him to come up with a strategy about how he's going to woo the convention delegates. How is he going to make a case to those who are showing up at that convention uh, that they should have confidence in him, that he'll do a better job next time than he did this past time. What would it have said if they ousted him at this point? Would this not make it appear that the party and now the official opposition is in disarray? Uh, it would have done that, but it would have been, I think, a short-term pain for long-term gain. I mean, it depends mm. a bit on what we think is likely to happen in the spring. 
if Andrew uh, Scheer is likely to, uh, you know, have a lot of questions posed of him, maybe not get a very strong vote of support at the convention. You know, you're six six months out of the election. You have a leader who has to decide whether he's going to stay or go. That mm. will take a while. By the time he resigns and they have a new leadership program, uh, Trudeau will have already been there for over a year uh, without having to worry about an opposition that's willing to bring him down or really take him on uh, strongly. So, you know, if, if Andrew Scheer is able to rally uh, conservative voters, then I guess it will have worked out for him and for the caucus. But if the caucus felt that he's unlikely to do that well and they're likely to be choosing a new leader, then suddenly, you know, their decision has been a decision right. to make them ineffective for the next year or so in Canadian politics. So maybe they should have ripped the Band-Aid off early. Well, uh, you know, there's, there's, I mean, again, the question is, yeah. what is their read on the party? Uh, well, let, uh, let, let's deal with that. Do you, th- what can Andrew Scheer do to change his, the people's perception of him in Ontario and Quebec, which is basically where he lost the election? Uh, does this mean he marches in a pride parade? Because I, I can't see him changing a lot of minds unless he's willing to do that or has some sort of moment. Yeah, although it's not clear that the the sort of hardcore conservative uh, supporters who are the types who are likely to show up at a convention uh, would necessarily see that as a great thing for them to do. I mean, there's a part of the conservative base. But they already have like, they already have that. They don't need that. You know, yeah. the hole is in the center right now. No, uh, I agree. But uh, there's a thing about partisans <laughs> that they want yeah. to elect people of a, you know that will be supporting of them. So I think for Andrew Scheer, it's maybe less doing specific symbolic things for Canadians and for the broader electorate, uh, than to show a real capacity to explain what went wrong, uh, what part of it was Andrew Scheer's own uh, responsibility, and what's his plan to do better, not just at the level of, you know, you know I can connect better with Canadians or we can sell our message better, which was what came out of his, his uh, discussion yesterday, but, you know, more, more specific strategies about how uh, money and organization is going to work inside the Conservative Party. I mean, I, I compare his case a bit to someone like Tom Mulcair, who everyone recognized was a political ace. But uh, in the you know in the year after the the big loss for him in 2015, he was incapable of actually explaining how he was going to do better. And when he showed up in front of the uh, the NDP convention, all he could say was, "I share your values, and you know, let's go win," as opposed to saying, "Well." No, actually, we have to rebuild these parts of uh, the partisan organization, or I failed to, you know, recruit the right kind of candidates, or in developing the platform, we made these mistakes. So a leader who's unable, I think, to explain to delegates about what they did wrong and what they'll do differently is unlikely to win their support at at a leadership review. So in some form, he will have to change his tune between now and then, no? I because think because so. at the end of yeah. the day, Peter McKay is still waiting in the wings and whoever else that wants to try to, to win this leadership, um, you know, d- does he have time for a slow grow? Uh, I don't think he has that much time. He bought a bit yesterday by uh, getting uh, John Baird to uh, do a election postmortem. So by bringing someone a bit outside of his circle to do that overview probably allows him to say when people ask those questions, we're waiting for the Baird report and I'm putting together... Uh, you know, the best possible team for uh, holding the Liberal government to account. But it's true, something that he has to face that Tom Mulcair didn't have to face is that uh, I think there's much more open jockeying already, uh, people beginning to put together teams and expectation that uh, Andrew Scheer will underwhelm at the at the convention. And so it does make it harder for him to actually be successful in the House because on the one hand, he doesn't know who to trust and who not to trust. Um, but even, you know, if people, if he does trust people, 
uh, tensions are going to be a bit divided with people also already thinking about ways of replacing him. So is this uh, a get-to-know-him tour, uh, or do we already know him? It's a change of perception. Well, I, I think it's hard to see what Andrew Shear uh, really wants to do. I mean, uh, externally, one gets a sense of, you know, from... I, I just don't see how he's going to change it. No, and the, we don't get the sense that he actually wants to change it. Yeah, right? so good that, point. <laughs> that will be, uh, so even his argument yesterday wasn't that they ran on the wrong policies, but they just didn't communicate them as well as they should have. But somehow, you know, as a chief communicator, he wasn't responsible for that either. So uh, I think it is hard. Uh, there's a certain stubbornness. I mean, the same stubbornness that leads him to say, I'm not going to, you know, march in a pride parade, or I'm not going to... Uh, you know, really come clean when I'm challenged about, well, why haven't I renounced my American citizenship yet? Or why can't I really explain why I wasn't telling the truth about uh, my credentials in the insurance industry? In all these cases, there seems to be a, a kind of an incapacity to respond to the criticism. And that was part of what uh, gave him troubles in the last campaign, is that when faced with the challenge, uh, really he failed to set out a clear line where we could say, okay, that's Andrew Scheer, like him or hate him, he's a man of principle. Uh, instead, it seemed to be an inability to figure out, well, what would be the right thing to say, rather than knowing instinctively what's right for him. So do you think this is the Conservatives saying, uh, we're not sure of this, okay, you've got till the spring, let's see what you've got? Yeah, well, I mean, the Conservatives who are there are ones who got elected, uh, and so they might see Andrew Scheer having a, you know, a role in their election. The people who are more likely to be upset are the ones who lost. Uh, as well as you know the the more grassroots conservative supporter who was a bit further from the scene and is saying, well, we were meant to win that one. Um, I thought Trudeau was meant just to fall over when you blew on him. Uh, what happened? And so uh, I think yes, in the spring it will be those people who will be much more present. You know, you know, as well as it's a weird thing with our parties these days. When leaders fail, we often look to the outside for potential replacements. I think in part because our parties are so leader dominated that you don't have a next set mm. of of you know leaders coming up. I mean, look at this Ontario Liberal leadership race. Uh, a bunch of people who are more or less unknown to Ontarians, you know, despite having sat in that government. And so the challenge is probably less inside the caucus and ambitious people on the outside who feel that they could do better as leader. The prime minister also heading into a similar set of meetings. What will his be like? Well. Again, the people who lost uh, won't be there, so uh, it will be people who see their success tied to, to Trudeau. But I suspect, uh, you know, there will be a bit of uneasiness. They're happy that they won. They aren't going to be challenging the leader. But there is a way in which the Trudeau management style, which seems aloof, uh, seems more based on image than on actually getting the tangible result, uh, is not going to sell well in the next election. And so I think they'll be looking a lot to, to Trudeau to ask, well, what are you going to do differently uh, particularly now that you have few, you know, smaller margins of maneuver and have to be a bit more strategic in dealing with a minority parliament. Uh, will he have to change the way he governs? Obviously, with a minority, he will. But uh, you, you talked about aloof and, and attitude. Many people have, you know, well, this was an election fought on character, many thought. Um, w- will, we see, will we see a different prime minister this, this session? I'm not, I'm not counting on change, but... It's hard to see Trudeau. <laughs> Am I being too optimistic in... here, Peter? I, I've never really seen Trudeau change, right? I, I think his yeah. style has always been his style. Now, 
uh, you know, was the he's never had to play the role of the prime minister of national unity, which of course was uh, what his dad, uh, you know, excelled at. And so that may be the thing that's a bit different this time. That suddenly, you know, the questions of the West and regionalism have become that much stronger. Uh, you know, so will he invent a different style? But personally, I'm not. I'm not that optimistic, and I look at a liberal platform which had, uh, you know, a small number of very specific deliverables, you know, that were at a scale that they might make a difference around, say, improving old age security. There's also the the cut to the income tax, but once those two or three things are done, there's a lot of small things that are, you know, symbolically interesting, but don't really move the dial on on the challenges facing this country. So, uh, you know, Trudeau, again, uh, I think that's consistent with the style of, of doing the things that are uh, you know, attention-grabbing uh, that are symbolic, but uh, not a lot of follow-through in terms of actually moving bigger pieces of social or economic policy. How much will unity be an issue for him? Because, uh, again, prior to uh, the election, he was disappointed Canada wasn't more united. Um, is that something he can fix? No, I don't think it's something a politician, can, uh, a prime minister can fix very easily, not over a short term. I think he's he's lucky in the sense that uh, we're unlikely to see, uh, I think, much more pressure on that. I mean, the West will continue to be unhappy, although overall it's clearly the liberal strategy to get this pipeline built, which would be consistent with reducing uh, some of the Western uh, grievance against his government. You know, the Quebec uh, nationalism is uh, more important again, but it's not taking the form of, of sovereignty. And I think Trudeau has really made the decision not to poke that bear. I mean, his brother would be poking, uh, sorry, not his brother, his dad would be Mm. poking the bear of Bill 21, saying, you know, what an affront to the Charter and our rights as Canadians. Uh, You know, this must be defeated. Uh, Trudeau says that maybe, perhaps, in the future, he might help a little in a court case challenging it. Uh, You know, he certainly decided he doesn't want to uh, poke that bear, and so he's willing to let Quebec to do things a bit differently um, without really trying to, to limit it in the way his, his father might have. Will politicians or parties, uh, um, how, how will they react to all this chatter of divisiveness? They can't be proud. No. Uh, and I mean, I think it's, it's difficult uh, for any of the, the party leaders at the moment who are all trying to win across the country. And so that's maybe a way that will reduce uh, at least the sort of regional divisiveness in our, in our politics. Can they win without dividing us? Or do they have to divide us to win? Well, you always have to divide us a bit uh, yeah. to win, uh, if only to remind us of our divisions that you're then going to somehow bring into harmonious, uh, uh, you know, harmonious mm-hmm. brotherhood and sisterhood. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I suspect, you know, the divisiveness about them being, you know, mean to each other and unhappy with each other, I mean, that's that's part of politics. I think the regional divisions, for the most part, the politicians don't want to get involved in. I mean, Andrew Scheer doesn't want to ride uh, Jason Kenney or Scott Moe's uh, horse because he needs to win in the 905. <laughs> that's not going to help him. Uh, so, you know, similarly, I think all the parties are looking to try and take votes from the bloc, and that involves not being too aggressive uh, against the views of the Quebec government. So... For those reasons, Mm. I think our national politicians are unlikely to stir up the regional divisions too greatly. Peter Griff has been with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. As always, Peter, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. And you too. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg, former, uh, former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic, analyst, uh, energy analyst, and, and talk about a couple of things here, uh, including another oil company leaving the patch as uh, Houston Oil and Gas has become the latest victim of the oil sector in Canada, and some leadership reviews that are going on. Joining us now, Dan McTagg. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks. Uh, but let's talk a little politics before we get into the uh, nuts and bolts of this stuff. Uh, Andrew Shear finishing uh, a leadership review yesterday, apparently a grueling meeting of like seven hours. Uh, your thoughts on on his performance over the course of the election? Well, of course, I tend to think that his uh, a lot of emphasis was put on his positions, particularly on his social positions, um, which I don't think were top issues going to the campaign. But apparently I was proven wrong. Uh, that, in fact, uh, Canadians are very concerned, and uh, top of mind is, in fact, uh, uh, one's position on uh, on gay marriage and on abortion. Uh, didn't think those were going to be the big issues, but the Liberals were successful in getting that out and ignoring pretty much everything else, uh, including uh, substantive issues on the economy, uh, things like uh, affordability, uh, particularly energy affordability, uh, and, of course, the growing divide, which is uh, apparent to everybody except those uh, pushing the climate change agenda. Uh, but all of those things, of course, are uh, now in behind. And of course, the question will be whether or not the Conservatives will maintain uh, Mr. Shear as its leader. Uh, I recall uh, back in my time when Mr. Harper uh, joined with Mr. McKay to create a Conservative Party, uh, they were able to, in their first shot, bring the federal Liberal party to a minority position and then proceeded in the next election to uh, form a minority of their own. So it really depends on the timing here. Uh, if you're going to throw uh, leaders out uh, every single time, uh, uh, there's an election and you don't achieve a majority government, then uh, you may never get that to that point. Um, I've heard a lot of arguments about uh, the Conservatives being far more uh, willing to fight themselves as opposed to fighting liberals. But, uh, you know, we also had that uh, in our own party, the Liberal Party, with Mr. Kretzen and Mr. Martin. So I don't think any party is immune from the issues of leadership. But we'll see what happens, what plays out. I think by the, if Mr. Scheer can survive till January when the House reconvenes and when the committees reconvene, the spotlight will be right back on Mr. Trudeau, uh, where they left off last June with things like the Mark Norman affair and, of course, the uh, SNC scandal. Uh, the Prime Minister undergoing the same meetings uh, today. How will that go for him? Well, it'll go very well. These are all people who, uh, uh, despite the 17 that back- packed up and left as first-term uh, liberals, uh, I think most of them are just relieved that they won. And so uh, I don't think there's going to be much uh, in the way of anything more than uh, self-congratulations of the possibilities that with the NDP being as weak as it is, uh, they have basically a functional majority the NDP will probably support them at every single turn because they can't afford another election. So I think there might be, uh, you know, concern about the 26 Liberals that have lost, but uh, at the end of the day, they still manage to handle, you know, hang on to power and uh, will do so uh, for the foreseeable future with the NDP or the bloc uh, not willing to play a ball when it comes to corruption that involves their province, and in particular, one of their flagship companies, SNC-Lavalin. All right. Obviously, lots of divisiveness within the country. Uh, Prime Minister has to do a lot to mend that. Um, uh, obviously, the Trans Mountain Pipeline in in the oil industry in Canada. 
um, are a part of that. We saw Ancana leave uh, earlier on, the, the announcement of that last week. And then uh, another Canadian, uh, another company, Calgary-based Houston Oil & Gas, has become the latest uh, to uh, start uh, shuttering in the oil industry. Um, oddly enough, a couple of days ago in the Globe and Mail, the headline was Trudeau's new cabinet to focus on green economy and climate change, sources say. Now, other than the Globe and Mail, and I think maybe a follow-up in the sun for this, uh, there wasn't really a lot of chatter about this. But it seems kind of odd that that's the first thing that sort of emanates out of uh, this government when the country is so divided on this right now. Well, it's not divided in the sense that uh, two-thirds of Canadians uh, voted uh, for parties that support uh, more punishing climate uh, taxes, uh, tax, taxes designed to change the weather. So, you know, the Liberals are basically saying, all right, pragmatically, where do we go? We've already brought on Stéphane Guibault, who is an, a radical environmentalist who wants to basically turn our entire economy into one massive electrical hub at cost of trillions of dollars. Uh, ironically, of course, his own province is still reeling from a windstorm last week that knocked down a heck of a lot of their own uh, hydro pylons. So uh, thank goodness they have natural gas and other uh, forms of fossil fuels to back them up. But I digress. I think the Liberals are reading the cards correctly. Uh, Two-thirds of Canadians, whether they like it or not, have voted for punishing taxes and carbon taxes in particular and clean fuel regulations. So I think Liberals are basically saying, all right, we're going to respect that. We didn't uh, take, we got 32% of the vote. Uh, the others uh, managed to uh, pick up between the three other parties, that is the Bloc, the Green, and the NDP, pick up about 30% between them. So uh, we're going to go down this road. And uh, if Canadians are surprised by this, well, then they can always remind themselves that they voted based on real relevant mm-hmm. issues like uh, you know, uh, same-sex marriage and, and abortion. Now, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, because that, uh, to me, is the way the Liberals are going to play this. And it's going to be uh, it's going to be a pretty expensive couple of years ahead. And I think that's something that Canadians have to recognize. Now, in Canada, was something that uh, most of us not see coming, uh, certainly in eastern Canada, but in western Canada, it's a no-brainer. Uh, they are and were the largest company in Canada by market cap. That is the amount of money that they produced uh, had to, in terms of assets bigger than any of our major banks, if you can believe it, single-handedly. But that's gone now. It's moved out. And, of course, uh, plenty of money in the United States, plenty of money globally. Uh, No one has the problems with, uh, you know, with exploiting the resources like Canada does. And, of course, uh, Houston Oil and Gas uh, had gone bankrupt, a junior, uh, and now can't uh, look after the very wells that it it began to exploit. And much of that uh, failure is directly resulting from uh, you know, the deep discount that Canadian oil is getting versus anyone else's oil, even Venezuela, where they can get it out. Uh, again, a result of pipeline hijinks. And of course, all this can be really laid at the feet of the prime minister who has played into this uh, idea of shutting down pipelines and putting all his eggs in one basket. And again, a pipeline that has yet to be built, proposed in 2013. It ain't built yet. And we're heading to 2020. Uh, TikTok. I think we're looking at uh, with his Bill C-69, Bill C-48, which he accepted without amendments, despite good amendments there on on, uh, changing the way in which pipelines are approved in this country and then blocking any type of uh, maritime activity only on the north coast of uh, British Columbia, not in the maritimes or anywhere else. You now see why, of course, uh, he's absolutely the wrong person to lead uh, a comeback when it comes to uh, dealing with uh, the growing and perhaps the most disturbing example of Western alienation I have seen in my lifetime. And I lived through the 1980s working as a uh, guy in the trenches for Pierre Elliott Trudeau after the National Energy Program in October of 1980. 
Where does this leave our natural resources? Because many thought after the election, especially with the divisiveness that was created in the country, that there would be some sort of reaching out, that the Trans Mountain would be built and and, and the green economy would be financed or the research and development for it through the sale of all of this. Is, it, is, there, is there an olive branch there or is it full steam ahead, green, we're going to do it, keep doing what we always well, said we're going to do? full steam ahead, hammer the consumer and make them pay for it rather than taking money that you would otherwise be able to get as norway did from its oil and trans make those transitions yeah the key element in my view and i think there's a lot of debate on this whether you believe or not believe in the science put that aside for a moment to me the best way the federal government can proceed here is with r&d and investments in high absolutely not pickpocketing and pilfering people but actually saying all right we know where we want to be in 20 or 30 years because we signed an agreement to that effect. So how we're going to get there is we're going to use the revenues that we make and we're going to incentivize companies to actually build manufacturing, to build the windmills, to build the solar panels in Canada, not just go around and use them, you know, for marketing purposes or, you know, just walk around and, uh, you know, say, hey, we built a windmill. Isn't a wonderful thing? I think the federal government has missed a golden opportunity here. While I think really, if I, for lack of a better term, really steaming a lot of people over the fact that, hey, the only way we're getting around this is by hitting you with a carbon tax or worse, making the, the cost of living rise much more dramatically than the cost of inflation. And it's too bad if you can't get a job or better yet, you can't uh, see your wages rise faster than uh, what we're prepared to propose in terms of a tax. So I think they got it wrong. But uh, I'm not a politician. I'm not in office. And uh, Canadians are going to have to suffer for their indifference and for voting for a pair of parties, a handful of parties that are determined to pick their pockets. Didn't we go through this with the Kathleen Wynne government, though? And it was that uh, it was that revolt that that got her kicked out of office. I mean, are we not yeah. heading in the same down the same path? Nine months later, we've forgotten about it completely and utterly. We, you know, I'm not sure what, if it's just because people are blindsided by this or because they've been, you know, fed a certain line or that they follow the issue. I come back to it. I mean, for most Canadians listening in, in our region here, the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, we voted based on abortion and social pro, uh, social issues on same-sex marriage. <laughs> it, it, things like pocketbook issues, which are extremely important to everybody. Uh, got why second, is the uh, second guest? Why is this message of uh, of extracting our natural resources, which are cleaner than coal? Uh, selling them, using that money to finance the R&D on renewable energy. Why does that message not resonate? Although uh, well, because taxing us more does. <laughs> yeah, go to your schools. Ask the teachers. Ask the curriculum. I know. I get Why the same thing from my kids. Yeah, I got five kids. And, uh, you know, uh, two of the thankfully at university on their way, looking for work, of course. But, uh, you know, there's no doubt. Uh, when you feed people this kind of a line over and over again without any type of objectivity, Oh, by the way, it's cold today. It's November. It's not global warming anymore. It has a lot more to do with what's going on uh, with the uh, solar minimum. But that's, that's, a, that's another matter. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that people have been really force-fed a message. Uh, and without any type of critical inability to look at the message and say, hey, is this really true? I mean, is the Earth coming to an end as we know it? Uh, are all the Arctic and uh, Antarctic polar ice caps now melting? Uh, you know, or is this just another example of... Uh, you know, where Canadians are going to be the do-gooders, uh, going to punish themselves while the U.S., the China, the India, the Indonesias, the Vietnams, and et cetera, laugh their way, including Saudi Arabia, laugh their way to the banks as we wind up uh, impoverishing our country, damaging our, our, uh, our social programs, and undermining our 
political cohesion as a country. Because I don't know if people understand this. I put a tweet, in fact, I pinned it that at Gas Price, price Wizard. I've had over 24,000 impressions already and 5,000 downloads or whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm trying to explain to people how bad it is in Western Canada and that uh, what they're hearing, uh, what they're potentially paying atten- not paying attention to is uh, people who are really hurt. And uh, when I say hurt, I don't mean, uh, you know, their feelings are hurt. I mean that they are, you know, they are seriously, there's a serious dislocation in terms of economics. People are losing their livelihood. People are taking their lives. Uh, people are trying to find uh, a better way through. Uh, and yet they're required to pay, excuse me, equalization to Quebec by the tune of $13 billion a year. Yeah. <laughs> Why is this a still a discussion of the extremes? And again, I had this I had this discussion. I've had it many times with professors, and I've yet to find a professor from any university in North America that says this isn't going to take twenty five to fifty years to transition us off of fossil fuels, and even then, it won't be all of them. Uh, so, well, <laughs> so why is that message not being sent as opposed and figuring out a way how to do it, as you said, R and D, giving incentive to industry? Why is that message not selling as opposed to, you know, if I pay a few more cents for per liter per gasoline and it doesn't do anything, I'm just going to feel better about it? Yeah, I mean that's a ridiculous thing about it too. You're giving me back the same money I'm spending on gasoline. What's the incentive for me not to use it? That's how ridiculous the current liberal carbon tax proposal is and uh, anybody who tries to make that argument i think is uh, a little offside but look for what it's worth uh, i think for most people uh we always want to do what's right we want to be seen to be doing what's right but we also have to be i think a little bit more open to what is happening to our country uh you have the rise of separatism uh in quebec and you have the rise of alienation and uh dislocation in uh, saskatchewan uh and alberta and central british columbia our resources, which have been really the vanguard of our uh, of our economy, uh, which have supported our standard of living, which is the envy of the entire world, no matter where you go, uh, all of these things are very much at risk. And while we're having a sort of navel-gazing, oh, let's talk about how much money we don't have for our hospitals or our teachers and our pensions, we start to forget that the reason we're having these discussions is because we're not uh, attracting the kind of investment, the kind of economic activity and robustness that we need to survive as a country economically. So if people want to continue to say, oh, it's a Western problem and it's oil and, you know, we have teachers, uh, you know, proselytizing, uh, indoctrinating our children based on the a false curriculum that the world is coming to an end and that climate strike is more important uh, than actually putting our heads together and finding a way around this by getting our resources, uh, our governmental uh, abilities to incentivize companies to do much better, then we're going to wind up in a pretty serious situation. I don't think, as I said, Trudeau is the man for it. Uh, He has created this problem. He has played the politics of us versus them. He has divided this country. Uh, This is going to be a hung parliament, and we're going to be back at this game in another 12 or 13 months. I just hope this time, and I say so in all respect to my liberal friends, they smarten up. Uh, you know, it's funny how, uh, again, people have arrived at a decision but really don't know much about it. And this is totally anecdotal. My kid plays hockey. I'm standing there with a pile of the parents. And they figure out what I am what I do for a living. So then you start getting peppered with questions, right? And then all of a sudden the discussion, and you got to be careful because, you know, someone's going to get ticked off. Yeah. Um, but but the sooner or later the discussion moves to what we exactly what we're talking about. And they ask me my position on it. And it's, you know, we got to get it out of the ground. we got to set 
sell it to other parts of the world which are burning far dirtier forms of energy, use that money, put it into research and development and make industry create and, and find the solution. And, you know, w- when you try to say that to them, they just, it's as if they've never heard that before in their lives. No. The only thing they know is, um, you know, we got to do this or because uh, the planet's uh, dying. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, well, that's, yeah, I can see why Alberta's upset. Too bad for them. Like yeah, they just don't, they just yeah. don't make the connection of how much money Alberta pours into our economy, and and, yeah. and not only that, how much this can actually help the problem. Uh, but yeah. but they've just bought into the message, which is short and sweet, and you know we got to do it now, we're all going to die. But they yeah. don't they don't know anything more beyond that, so they're just following like sheep without yeah. even asking any questions. You know, in- interesting, Scott. I mean, I used to do a lot of interviews with almost every single media: CBC, CTV, Global, uh, and of course, I'm now really a handful, uh, which I always do, and I'm always willing to put my information out. But I have to figure that there is a constant message. And I've had, uh, in my 30 years of doing this, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, uh, in the media and are tell, you know, singing this song about climate change, which they didn't even think about five to ten years ago. When you speak to them privately and personally, um, there's direction. Our media, uh, in order to get the 600 million bucks they need, because many of them are in real trouble, are buying into this, but yeah. more importantly, em- emphasizing this beyond what is realistically plausible, because uh, it's a condition for them to get money. And I, you know, it, some people are going to find that statement a little weird, uh, but it's uh, it's very much uh, not by accident. And I'm in that I'm at the really the the, the thin edge of what, uh, what what's happening here, because of course gasoline has always been an important issue. Uh, predicting it has been even more important. But uh, one by one, you can see many of the media backing off from this, and I don't mean you, but yeah, media yeah, in general, yeah. because they've been directed it's not fashionable. Not to talk about this. It's not fashionable. Well, it's not just fashionable, it's verboten. It's not allowed. You're not allowed to discuss it. So what you have here is an eclipse of reason. You have basically uh, information that is being withheld from people, and you're given a very much a one-sided view of the world. And so my yeah. job, um, as uh, you know, someone who's been in this business for a long time, is to push back and push back hard as an Easterner, as a guy who's never liked the oil industry, who fought the oil industry, when, and I mean truly fought them. Um, I think uh, you know my work has been done too in a way to say I you know I have problems with the way in which the industry has behaved competitively. I've never gone out with the view that we could actually afford to take our oil and natural gas industry and throw it in the garbage. And by the way, when I had my kids a couple of weeks ago with the uh, my daughters in hockey, as is my my other uh, her twin sister. Uh, one's a goalie, one's a defense, uh, you know, same question sort of came up. And I said, look at the pipelines you have going through this building. They say natural gas. You have heat outside and you have cold air in the inside. How's that done? Yeah. It didn't happen by osmosis. The chemicals required <laughs> to cause that rink to be ice yeah. and to have the warmth here is done complements of fossil fuels. It's responsible use is the reason we do so well as a society. It's the reason people are living a lot longer. There isn't issues of famine. We are living in a time that Harold McMillan, the old... Uh, Labor uh, Prime Minister would have said 34 years ago, we've never had it so good. And uh, unfortunately, I think it's that complacency that leads people to this idle chat and talk about the world coming to an end. And uh, there's billionaires going out there exploiting it. And unfortunately, I think uh, we're about to uh, be slammed pretty hard. Canada is an example of a country that has now allowed itself to be poisoned by this nonsense. It's also going to be a victim. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic and energy analyst. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for having me, Scott. Ciao. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Hamilton City Council has given the go-ahead to uh, for Hamilton 100 to proceed with a bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games to explain the significance of all of this and why this is so important. Let's bring in uh, Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Mayor Fred Eisenberger. He is with us now. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Hey, before we jump into this, I'm going to T-bone you and just ask you for your thoughts. Uh, you want to weigh in on uh, what the Premier had to say uh, in regard to the city a couple of days ago? Uh, you know, look, I'm, uh, you know, that, that, that's kind of politics, uh, you know, it's at Queen's Park, and uh, I'm going to leave it at Queen's Park. Uh, what we uh, keep talking about is a nonpartisan effort by all of our MPs to uh, MPPs to get together and talk about what uh, what's in the interest of Hamilton and how we're all going to work together to uh, to make it successful. So I uh, I'll leave the uh, the inside politics to uh, Queens Park and uh, continue to work with our uh, partners in the province and the federal government to uh, look for opportunities to improve our city and get funding for projects that we uh, care about and we think the province for uh, their investment in LRT, and we certainly anticipate uh, additional uh, funding on affordable housing and all the other areas that need uh, our, our joint attention. So we'll continue working with our partners. That was beautiful, Mayor Fred. That was perfect. My goodness, look at you go. Uh, that being <laughs> that being said, uh, and then we're going to move on from this. Are you concerned about the divisiveness we see in politics? And, and not so much on the municipal level. I mean, I guess that's always been there, uh, and it's always been there on all different levels. But are you concerned what's going yeah. on in the country right now as a leader? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the divisiveness in general. Uh, you know, and it, it obviously kind of represents itself in the, in the political level as well. It, uh, it seems to come out that we've now got divisions, uh, you know, nationally, uh, you know, between the you know, provinces, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, is not new, but uh, certainly had been heightened by virtue of the election that just passed. And, uh, you know, like that kind of divisiveness is happening in our city. It's happening, uh, you know, between the populations. Uh, you know, we're, we've got uh, a lot more people that are more willing to be outspoken on divisive issues that, uh, you know, formerly would have been uh, taboo to get into because it uh, it really doesn't solve any kind of a problem. So I see it happening everywhere, and I'm hoping that that, that we'll cycle back out of this because, uh, you know, it is not. A, a constructive way for us to continue to build communities, uh, to build a province or build a country. So uh, we don't need to be uh, at odds with one another. We need to be unified, work out our differences, talk them through, not have this ongoing kind of poking going on, uh, you know, about kind of tribal issues. And so uh, social media, in my view, has been not at all helpful hmm. in, uh, in uh, tamping that down. It's actually exacerbated the problem. Far too many people weighing in, uh, you know, without either knowledge. People are, pre- are presuming that what they see on social media is journalism or news, which, uh, you know, isn't accurate either. So I think there's uh, there's some issues to sort out, and uh, social media has got to be one area that we need to tackle. And obviously the uh, the downside of, uh, you know, the media, you know, being diminished in many respects in terms of employment and opportunity has certainly also reduced the uh, the kind of investigative journalism that I think uh, has been so uh, helpful and thoughtful in the past that uh, may not be as uh, helpful and thoughtful into the future. Well said. All right, let's talk about the uh, Commonwealth Games bid. Uh, PJ, uh, PJ Marchetti and crew uh, at it again. I think this is a cool initiative. Hamilton 100, uh, bringing the, uh, the games to Hamilton for uh, the 100th anniversary of. Your thoughts on this? Yeah. 
You know, interesting. I met a gentleman this morning, uh, a firm name of Cooper, who is, uh, whose family actually built the uh, the North Stands of Iberwood Stadium back in 1928, prior to the 1930 Empire Loyalist Games that started right here in Hamilton. So mm. this is really about a coming home of something that was created here in Hamilton by uh, Mr. Robinson that uh, came up with an idea that said we ought to have a Commonwealth Games and bring all that great talent to uh, to Hamilton. And we built facilities. Iverwind uh, was one of them. And uh, Jimmy Thompson Pool and the HAAA grounds were all legacy pieces of those games. And uh, it would be wonderful if we could, uh, you know, cost-effectively bring them back to the city of Hamilton for the 100th anniversary. Clearly, these games are going to happen somewhere. Uh, I would think that Hamilton would be the uh, hands-down favorite in terms of celebrating its 100th anniversary. And so uh, we, I think it's appropriate for us to... Uh, try to achieve being Canada's uh, chosen location, and then we, uh, you know, down the road we'll get into a international bidding process that uh, hopefully will also result in Hamilton being the uh, chosen one. Having said all of that, we're I'm delighted that this is being driven by the essentially private sector members that came together and said, you know mm-hmm. what, we think this is really important. Uh, so the Mercantes and uh, architects, uh, you know, lots of players have come to the table. Uh, Gowlings, uh, the major law firm in the city, have all stepped up and said, we, we think that this is something the city should get behind, and we're going to be 100% behind it. And if the city participates, then uh, we can create something uh, that is successful and, uh, and cost-effective for us to do as a major event that will highlight not only the city of Hamilton, but highlight sports and uh, the importance of sports in our community, as well as all the facilities that come with the legacy pieces that these games tend to leave behind. Uh, with organizers, the fact that it is the 100th anniversary, does that give us the leg up at all, or, or any feedback there, or any response there well, in any way? I mean, my sense of it is we've got to be the sentimental favorite. I mean, there is a kind of an undercurrent of wink and nudge that's going on here saying, you know, it just makes you know, logical sense that on the 100th anniversary of these games that uh, it, it goes back to where it all started. Uh, I mean, I think it's uh, it's kind of a sentimental favorite in my view. Uh, you know, how that plays out on the international side will be a different uh, different issue. But I think for Canada, I think we, uh, we, we've got to be. And I, I suspect many municipalities have begged off uh, stepping into this uh, 2030 Commonwealth Games bid, be largely because they just think that Hamilton's the logical choice. Hmm. And so I think at the outset, I think uh, I think we're in good shape. Uh, the, you know, the detail and the questions will always be around the financing. Yeah. Uh, are the provincial and federal governments prepared to step up? Uh, how much uh, can we raise locally? And with, uh, with a number of private sector partners already at the table and uh, already making noises about financial commitments as well. I think uh, I think we've got the makings of a, a great partnership that, uh, you know, really spells success. But that is yet to be flushed out. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're going to do this one step at a time. Uh, first step is be the uh, Canada's choice for the games. And then, uh, you know, we'll get to the next steps in terms of working with the provincial and federal governments in terms of their participation. And then we'll take it from there. We're certainly at a strong uh, starting point here because, as you mentioned, uh, we're like 10 years out of this. And the private participation, uh, the private industry that's come on and and, and pretty much uh, started this whole ball rolling as opposed to, you know, people within the city. That's got to be that's got to be reassuring. And why do you think that's happening now? Is that another sign of, of the interest in the city and how the city has expanded and grown and that this sort of revenue is is now being generated? generated this way. 
Well, they're they're uh, I mean they're 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 literally funding the first portion of this bid process so yeah. to the tune of some two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The traditional way that this has happened in the past is the city has decided to uh, become a participant in the games, and, and we've had to pull in people from the private sector. Uh, this was actually quite the opposite. This was uh, the private sector stepping up and saying, "We think there's value here. It's great economic development. It's great." Uh, uh, legacy building opportunities for the city, and you know what's good for for the city is good for business. So, so bringing thousands of people and uh, athletes and participants and media to the city of Hamilton isn't going to hurt, hurt the hotel business, isn't going to hurt the convention business, isn't going to hurt the restaurant business. Uh, certainly, there are legal issues that come out of all of that. So you can understand why many of these participants that are in the hospitality business and are in the legal business are interested in participating in this because there's employment opportunities, community benefits that uh, is now the primary focus of these games. So it used to be that it was all about legacy uh, infrastructure. Yeah, it's what do we get out of it? What, yeah, what's left after after it's all done, what the city gets out yeah. of this? Today today is much more about about uh, the social infrastructure, the affordable housing piece. Uh, so you, you build you build a housing complex for the athletes and that you want that housing complex to be part of your affordable yeah. housing stock thereafter. And, uh, the, you know, the uh, the employment benefits have come out of this. So uh, the, many of the things that you're either going to build or, or, or develop are going to require employment opportunities. So what are the broader community benefits that come out of that? One of the uh, one of the major pieces that uh, is, 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 and many of the elements that we need are already in place, like the, uh, the new Tim Hortons field, yeah. uh, you know, Jimmy Thompson pool revamped. Uh, those are, you know, great practice facilities. Uh, McMaster uh, and their facility in terms of track is pretty well set as well. Uh, we're already in the process of, of developing uh, uh, the Confederation Park uh, uh, cricket mm. pitch, which is uh, is already in development in other capital books. <laughs> and, the, and the major piece uh, for McMaster would be the uh, the replacement of the aquatic center that they've long desired to uh, to renew and replace. Well, so this that would, that's probably the major piece that. Uh, that would be a legacy piece for the city. And and just by the feel of this, the way it's all starting, it sounds like it might be a little bit easier than a stadium or an LRT. What are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, none, none of them are ever easy. If it were easy, then everyone would be doing it. Uh, there, uh, but but you always always have to look for not only the cost but also the benefit. So there's a long term benefit here. Ties it very nicely with the LRT investments that we're making, and there's a there's a nice tie into that. Uh, the uh, the affordable housing that I just talked about, uh, you know, that's a that's a critical need in the city of Hamilton. So how can we inspire more affordable housing through this process? And so uh, I I really think that if you look at the uh, at the benefits, the long term benefits that come out of it, you can look to places like Manchester, England, and Glasgow, and a number of other communities that have used the Commonwealth Games to actually inspire growth and development in their communities, both on the social side as well as on the legacy infrastructure side. So this is not a new concept. The, the newer part of this concept is that it's more focused on the uh, social aspects of the game as opposed to the, the legacy pieces. And for Hamilton, much of the infrastructure that we require is already in place. And so we're, we're, we don't need to build a whole lot new, but what, what we need to do is build things that to have enduring value uh, over the, the, the you know the next generation in terms of some of the social needs that we uh, we already have demonstrated. So I, I think the package has uh, merit. 
Uh, I, I certainly understand the caution because, uh, you know, on many occasions we hear about the, uh, the disasters that have happened, uh, you know, from a costing perspective in other games. But there are many examples of very successful games. And uh, as uh, PJ Bercanti pointed out yesterday, the model for these are the successful ones, not the unsuccessful hmm. ones. And, the, you know, the monetary issues coming from the business side, their, uh, their, their sense of uh, cost effectiveness is, I think, probably a little more attuned to uh, being critical on those issues than uh, the city might otherwise be. Hamilton City Council has given the go-ahead for Hamilton 100 to proceed with the bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Joining us from the city of Hamilton, Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Fred, thanks for the time as always. Take care of that cold. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.